African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us right here for another installment of African Dialogue. Remember you with me, Benjamin Mushatam, until midday. You are on Channel Africa where you get the African perspective. Remember, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa on DSTV Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. And you can stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, let's look at today's uh, discussion. Congress of the People MP Deirdre Carter is planning to reintroduce a bill to Parliament that will explicitly allow for living wills to be recognized and allow for uh, terminally ill patients to receive fuse medical treatment that could prolong their lives. Addressing a media briefing last week was Dignity Essays Professor William Landman, who was saying that the bill was about 20 years overdue since the Laws Commission's 1999 report recommended advanced healthcare directive that actually enables competent people to express their preferences for euthanasia. We know euthanasia is also known as assisted suicide, but as the defined as a doctor intentionally killing a person by the administration of drugs at that person's voluntary or competent requests. It comes in different folds. Sometimes it's about a patient actually refusing uh, to take medication and having that legal right. But uh, joining us for this particular discussion is Ms. Deirdre herself, that Ms. Deirdre Carter, who is the Deputy General Secretary of the Congress of the People. We also have Professor William Landman, who is uh, the executive uh, uh, committee member of Dignity Essay. And also we've got the neurosurgeon to give us a professional view. That's Professor Sam Hokong, who's also joining us on the line. Let's start with you, Deirdre, in terms of uh, why pursue this particular direction in South Africa? Why is this a case that you've taken upon yourself? Um, good morning, Benjamin. Good morning to your listeners, as well as to uh, Professor Mokakung and Professor Landman. Well, you know, firstly, if we if we have a look at dying, dying, it is a natural and inevitable part of life. Unless we die an unnatural death, we will go through a natural dying process. But for some, it's going to be peaceful and dignified. For others, it will be filled with pain, distress, and suffering. And we'll never know which one it's going to be. If we look at medical advances, medical science, the medical fraternity today can sustain life much longer than what was previously possible. Um, If we have a look at just recently, in August 2014, we had parliamentarian and very good friend Mario Royani Ambrosini, who was terminally ill with stage 4 lung cancer, Mm. heightened his imminent um, death by committing suicide, shooting himself. We've had our Revit Madiba lingered for months hooked up, to, hooked up to a machine after doctors declared him to be in a permanent vegetative state. And we've seen Archbishop Tutu in 2014 declaring um, that he was in favor of assisted dying and living worlds. Now, I just want to make very clear, just specifically on your introduction, mm. that what the bill that is on the table at the moment is a living will, 
a okay. not active euthanasia okay. or um, assisted suicide. All right. So how do we break down that differentiation from uh, a living will and something like euthanasia? Um, how do we actually break down the moral um, statutes with the differences between the two, uh, Deirdre? Well, you know, Benjamin, I think the first thing is I'm, I'm going to give you a very simple explanation that sure. I've been using in communities in the last um, two, three weeks. And it's like you would have a will or a testament. Um, that will where you will decide what is going to happen with your properties or you know or your belongings in the event of you passing away. Sure. What we are doing here is basically almost similar but on a different level. This will say that in the event where I can no longer talk for myself, when I'm in a comatose or a vegetative state, or I'm in the final stage of, for example, cancer. Um, you know, and there is no prospects of me recovering. Sure. That this is what I want to happen. I don't want additional treatment. Mm. I don't want additional blood infusions. Um, and this is really what you are saying. Say, for example, you're in a comatose vegetative state. This is where not the doctor nor your family is going to make the decision to switch off a machine. I never want my child to make the decision to mm. say, your fat machine and I'm sure none of your listeners or yourself would want to do that to your children and what you are doing is you're basically preparing while you in you know of sound mind to take a decision that if you ever in the event where you are terminally ill with no prospects of, of getting any better that you refuse treatment when you can no longer speak for yourself let me bring in a professor Sam Hokong as um, a medical professional, uh, Professor Sam, does not this uh, actually put you in an ethical dilemma? It certainly does. In fact, uh, to be quite blunt, uh, our Hippocratic oath is against it. Tell us a little bit more about that, just so we can contrast your responsibility uh, towards if we see such a bill being enacted, how would that actually contrast with your professionalism, uh, Professor Sam? Yeah, I think, look, let, let me start by first saying we certainly understand the suffering of people. There's no doubt about it. We as doctors are almost always at close interface with these people. They, they really do suffer. Sure. And when, when we, we, we say an opinion that's against uh, maybe them terminating their suffering. It's, it's not because we are insensitive. We, as, as, as we start practicing, we take an oath. The whole world, doctors do take an oath to say we will, because we're in this privileged position where, in fact, uh, a lot of times the life of patients is in our hands. It's upon us to promise that we'll never do anything that, uh, that will terminate their lives. That's why I'm saying our, the oath that we take, the oath of practice, is certainly against that. And let's look at the issue of what um, um, Deirdre was speaking about in terms of, of the will of uh, the patient themselves. You know, because sometimes we don't know how far things go for one to make such a decision, is it very much 
easy to tell ethically from a professional perspective, uh, Professor Mohoko, how far unbearable physical pain can be measured for a person to actually demand for them not to take additional um, medication? Or how far actually is it for the practitioner themselves to say, well, I'm, I'm actually not going to actually pursue further treatment for this particular patient? Yeah, you, you've asked a very good question. In fact, many things rotate around this. Pain cannot be measured by us as doctors. It's, it's something that's felt by the patient. So indeed it is there. There is pain. Now, the, the question some of us ask is, have we done everything to try and alleviate that pain? If pain is the central point. I mean, we do know that pain is not only uh, always the central point. Maybe you can say in many cases it is. But mm. it's difficult to measure it, to assess it. Mm. And, I mean, that's why you can't just say because somebody's crying, crying of pain, then, then I, can, I can alleviate that pain by suffering, by ending the suffering. What if that patient is suicidal? Mm. Are you going to assist in, in, in the act? This is where the dilemma is. This is a real problem, but how to go about it is not simplistic. It's not simplistic indeed. Let's bring in Professor William Landman, uh, Landman rather from uh, the uh, Dignity SA. He's an executive committee member. I'm sure as Dignity SA, um, Professor Landman, you navigate around these various moral questions. Where do you sit? Because there is definitely a spectrum of different moral choices to actually make in this regard. Yes, Benjamin. Thank you for the for the opportunity and and good morning to the other panelists. Um, I want to make it quite clear that um, we um, have no we have a right to life. Yeah. Sorry, he's uh, fading. I can't hear him. I don't know if you can hear him. Okay. Let me see if we can uh, clear that line for you, Professor Mohokong. But in the meanwhile, Professor Landman, you can uh, continue. We'll see if we can just uh, clear that line now for Professor Mohokong. But you can continue, Professor Landman. I, I hope Professor Mohokong can hear me. Um, we, you know, just to repeat, we um, we have a right to life in our constitution. Sure. Very importantly, that right to life, in the words of Constitutional Court Judge uh, Cato Reagan, is tied up with the right to dignity. Um, it's not just biological life. Or mm. it, is, it is life coming up to a certain standard. Now, the fact, the fact is that we have no obligation to live in all circumstances. We, our life is finite, and, and dying is a part of life. Unfortunately for some as I think Deirdre Carter also pointed out, dying is a protracted and painful and horrible process. Mm. It will not happen to all of us. I think it will happen to a minority, and, and this is what the bill is about. Um, there may be, we may be terminally ill and in, in pain that is intractable and unbearable. There is no doubt that we wish to address pain and suffering throughout our lives, and our our view is that why should it be different at the end of life? Why do we then step back and have discussions about whether we can measure pain? We know that if a person is terminal, terminally ill and dying, what that suffering is like, that suffering at the end of life. We do not have to speculate about that. Now, this is, this is you know, basically just the philosophical standpoint. Mm. The, 
the, the measure, the draft bill, the draft amendment bill, is in fact simply um, affirming good medical practice. This is what happens. We, we, there comes a point when treatment is futile. It serves no purpose. Trying to extend life serves no purpose. Where a natural death is what needs to set in. And this bill is simply to mm. give uh, medical professionals that comfort that if they do what is good medical practice, what we call standard of care, that they don't expose themselves to criminal and civil li- uh, liability. Professor, last my, that we, sure, go ahead. Give me your last point yeah, and I'll, I'll come, come with the next question. Sure. We may, we may get to that, but the principles of this bill are already enshrined in the Constitution mm. and in the National Health Act of 2003. It is just a matter of bringing them out explicitly so that people can have no doubt that they can act in this way. What, what are your thoughts, uh, Professor Landman, in Professor Smokokong's um, firm stand as a health practitioner that he has actually had an oath that he had to take. And that oath is actually to preserve life. And at his best uh, position as a professional, that's what he aims to do. A bill like that could actually contradict his professional capacity or his ability to actually fulfill uh, all um, the functions that he can as a medical practitioner. Respectfully, I disagree with that. Um, We already have uh, a position in our law that is confirmed by the Supreme Court of Appeal in 2016, which says that we have a right to refuse any medical treatment, not only when we are uh, terminally ill and in the process of dying or near death, but we can refuse any medical treatment. And the principle affirmed by the National Health Act is that uh, practitioners need our informed consent for any treatment. I mean, there are exceptions like a, a, an emergency, like in a car crash and somebody, mm, mm. you don't know what that person wants. Mm. But that is a fundamental principle of medical ethics, mm. and it's also a fundamental principle which is acknowledged by our Constitution and by our National Health Act. So, uh, in addition, one can say that the Hippocratic Oath the first principle of the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. It doesn't say extend life. What does it mean not to do harm when one is terminally ill? It simply means when life is at an end and treatment is futile mm. and that patient wants it to stop, that patient has the right to have it stopped because medical technology cannot make us live uh, at, at infinitum. Well, let me take a quick break. We'll be back and I want to put those views to you, Professor Sam Hokong, in terms of what was highlighted there by Professor Landman. But also when we come back after a break, we'll be joined by Sherilyn Dudley, who is the Member of Parliament, as well from uh, the African Christian Democratic Party. And we'll hear what they have to say. Apparently they're also anti uh, this particular bill. Uh, but we'll deal with those questions that were brought forward by Professor Landman after this break. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 
1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin Mushatama, on various platforms uh, that we broadcast on, on Shortwave, on DSTV, and as well if uh, you are listening to us uh, online. Uh, thank you for being part of the Channel Africa Pan-African family. Well, uh, today we're looking at uh, this idea of, and it's not really euthanasia, it was clarified by Jadria Carter that is actually being introduced as a bill, but uh, it's a will that explicitly allows for someone to actually who is terminally ill to refuse medical treatment that could prolong their lives. That is uh, uh, what is actually under conversation in Parliament currently. Uh, joining us is Deirdre Carter, who is actually putting the motion in Parliament. Uh, she's the Deputy General Secretary uh, of the Congress of the Peoples, known as COPE. And also we've got Professor William Lantman, who is an Executive Committee member at Dignity Essay, and Professor Sam Hokong, who's a neurosurgeon. And now we've joined by uh, Sherilyn Dudley, who is a member of parliament in, the, in South Africa and also a member of the African Christian Democratic Party. But I want to actually, before I come back to you, Deirdre and uh, Sherilyn, I want to hear what you have to say, Professor Sam Hokong, around the issue that was highlighted by Professor Landman that uh, in any practice on a, any uh, individual, Definitely a, pro- a health professional needs consent for any treatment. It's the fundamental uh, principle for any health practices. And yes. stating the fact that uh, your oath doesn't say that necessarily your job is to not extend life, but it's, next, it's specifically not to actually do any harm. So how do you actually consolidate those arguments made by uh, Professor Landman? Yes, no, look, I mean, there are many good points that he makes, uh, the, the, the issue is on which side of the line is one standing. I mean, sure. there are two that I need to respond to. The first one, he puts it as if we are speculating when we talk about pain. And, uh, you know, he says we shouldn't speculate, people are suffering. But he'll never change the fact that you can never measure pain. There's nothing to you can mm. use to measure pain. Yeah. And in fact, uh, you, you know, uh, we do know scientifically that people have different levels of threshold of pain. Some people are more stoical than others. That, that's to complicate the matters. Somebody will cry at a small pinch, uh, where, whereas another one, you know, you can even start to cause him to bleed before he, he cries. So that is the problem, that this is a subjective thing that nobody can assess from outside. Now, the second issue, of course, is the patient's right, mm. the patient's right to refusal. We, we know that. And in fact, throughout our practices, we go through it. I mean, I'll tell a patient that he's got a brain tumor, and for me to help him, I would like to open his head and remove it. And some patients say, no, no, I want to go to my traditional healer. You mm. can't stop them. So they go to their traditional. Yes, we, we know that you can't force a patient to, to, to be done on the patient what the patient doesn't want to be done, that we accept. Oh. 
Mm. Well, let me bring it to you, Shirley, and bring you into the conversation. I'll come back to you, Deirdre. Um, I know as uh, the African Christian Democratic Party, you are pro-life. And why would you think this would be an anti-life kind of um, a bill? Because it just gives a human being that kind of sense of control when they feel like they're terminally ill, to just to refuse medical treatment so that they don't have to deal with the pain any longer. Isn't that something that's pro-life because it gives a human being that pro-choice? Well, Benjamin, it sounds so rational and reasonable, but the reality is, you know, the ACDP um, sees this as something that's going to be hugely problematic, particularly in South Africa, in terms of um, the likelihood of AIDS sufferers and the elderly feeling pressure to end their lives and commit suicide to make it easier for others. This is how we, this is how we are in our makeup as people. Now, what what bears this out is that former euthanasia supporter Professor Theo Boer told the House of Commons in the UK in 2014 not to make the same mistake that the Netherlands has made. You know, he says that as an academic in the field of ethics. Um, he argued seven years ago that a good euthanasia law would produce relatively low numbers of deaths, but now says he believes that the very existence of a euthanasia law turns assisted suicide from a last resort into a normal procedure. You know, he, he was a member of the review committee that monitors euthanasia deaths. And he said, has said that euthanasia is now becoming so prevalent in the Netherlands that it is on the way to becoming a default mode of dying for cancer patients. Assisted deaths have increased by about 15% every year since 2008, and the number could hit a record 6,000 um, you know, in that particular year that he was talking about. Mm. He's concerned that the extension of killing to include the, the demented and the depressed and the establishment of traveling euthanasia do- doctors saying that he was wrong. He was terribly mm. wrong, in fact. And um, he, he just the, the, the regulations have actually gone in a completely different direction to what people imagined and fantasized that it would go. And as our um, other uh, doctor there and professor has said, we know this is in the law. People can still refuse certain mm. treatment. This is not to force people. So we have what we need in terms of people's dignity and to, uh, whether they accept certain mm. treatment or no treatment. Mm. But to make it the norm puts huge pressure on people who feel that they're being a nuisance to their families or to others or draining the coffers or being an expense. And, and, and this is, this is the, the, the real tragedy of it. Well, Deirdre, doesn't Sherilyn have a point there that a bill such as this could bl- blur the line already in South Africa, we have a problem of a, a suicide um, a trend where we're seeing upward mobility in it. Won't that actually create a, an enablement for that type of environment? Well, Benjamin, thank you. And I, hi, Sherilyn. Listen, hi, the, the, the first thing is, um, Sherilyn, the, the, the actual bill on the table is not about active euthanasia. The bill on the table is about a living wolf. Okay, um, just from, from, from Christianity side, um, and that's just one point that I'd like to raise as well. Um, you know, people still have, have uh, you know, have a, have a right to decide. And we look at, for example, um, Archbishop Tutu is in favor of having mm. a living will. Sure. So this is not about active euthanasia. This is about a choice. We, we're talking about, I am pro-life, okay? Sure. But we want to preserve life at what cost? Okay, extending life 
for extending suffering. I want to, seeing that we're taking examples of House of Commons and all of those, did you know that in the, U, in the United States, plus minus 50,000 patients are kept alive in a comatose or a permanent vegetative state, okay, just for the sake of keeping them alive? Mm. Is that the right decision to take? Okay, putting, and, and I'm saying this, putting families' life savings, selling their homes, their everything to keep them into that medical care. And although mm. I also want to say that in the United States, a living will is actually um, legally acceptable. Um, so what we are saying here is nothing new of what is already in the Health Act. The Health Act, Section 6 and Section 7, provides that health services may not be provided to a user without that user's um, informed consent. Um, the Supreme Court of Appeal, full bench of judges, says that if you are going to give treatment to a patient that did not agree to that treatment, that is assault. Um, as far back as 1999, our then-president, Nelson Mandela, actually um, had, you know, um, the Law Reform Commission look at mm. this, and there was a complete bill actually drafted. Mm. But they didn't only leave it to, um, to a living will. Mm. What they did was they extended it also to include active euthanasia. Mm. But that bill has been there lying collecting dust. So I think just very importantly, I also agree with, with um, Professor Mukhukong. We're sitting with a situation where if a person has got a brain tumor, and you, I agree, and if the person is operable and you are able to remove that tumor, then that is it. We've got to be pro-life, okay? Mm. But, this is, but if the cancer has spread and the patient has got no chance of actually surviving because it's gone into the bone, which is extremely painful, mm. it has gone into other parts of the body, um, do you want to play God? Mm. and extend that person's misery. Because we've got to ask the question, how thin is mm. the line between the medical science we've got and actually living or dying a natural life? Is it a natural process if we are giving a person four pints of blood every two days only to keep him alive? The question here for me is, how do we know that the person who is actually making the decision in his will, Professor Landman, actually has the mental apparatus to actually make that decision, who will be actually evaluating that particular process? Because that's where the dilemma is. Maybe the person has had a history of suicide attempts or maybe has has a depression depressive edge to their uh, uh, state of being so who will actually monitor that people making these decisions will actually be making them responsibly Benjamin, i think we should bear in mind that most people are rational most of the time and i don't think we should uh, let legislation or doing the right thing be guided by exceptions we sign contracts throughout our lives. We sign documents. We sign legal, legally binding documents. And it would be no different with these two documents, a, a living will and a durable power of attorney for health care. Clearly, uh, the person who, the, the people who assist one to attest as witnesses a certain document would, would have to make that judgment as they do in a, as a matter of course with all, all other, mm. with all other legal documents. Mm. Um, 
remember these these documents, these uh, instruments uh, are signed and drafted and signed and attested by witnesses when when we uh, during the normal course of mm. events where we where we say one day in 30 years time, 20 years time, whatever the case may be, I may be in this kind of position that I see other people are in, and I don't want to be in that position. So. The, the normal course of events, we are, we are rational people who express our wishes in, in these documents. Now, it, what you're talking about is, uh, and, and Professor Mokokong also talks about, is how do we know the content of other minds? What, how do we really mm. know what happens in, in, in the minds of other people? Sure. And in, specifically then in the context of pain. Now, there's a sense in which we are all private. I'm, I'm, I'm the only person who really knows my own beliefs and convictions and thoughts and emotions and pain. But uh, th- th- that is a truism that we have to, leave, uh, to live with. We, we judge what other people think, their, their mental states by their bodily behavior over time, etc., etc. But here we're talking about terminal pain and suffering, you know, right at the end of life. When there's no doubt that somebody is terminally ill and is suffering excruciatingly. So I think talking in that context sure. about pain, not be our inability to judge that somebody is in pain and that pain is something subjective and private is really, really not, not on. Okay. Benjamin, if I can, can I please come in just and just add something else as well. Okay, just quickly, okay. I, I want us to get Professor Sam and Sherlene to come in. Okay, but I will be very quick. Um, You know, the process here is not about a person that is suffering of depression or any of that. It's about stopping a treatment that is going to to prevent me from dying a natural death at the time that I'm supposed to. Mm. For example, I'm hooked to a ventilator Mm. with no chance of actually coming off that ventilator, Mm. like we saw with with, um, President Mandela. Mm. Okay, so it is allowing me the opportunity to actually die my natural death. Okay. Um, Professor Sam Hokong, what are your thoughts? A lot has been said. And uh, what are your thoughts? Because from where I stand, that question still stays, stands yeah, for me. Because yeah, if no, someone no. Is, is really, really feeling very ill or feels like it's their time to go, or uh, they are more vulnerable to have thoughts of letting go of, of this life. So it comes back to that ethical question again in terms of yeah, the vulnerability yeah, certainly, of their certainly. mental state. And, and, and of course, as I said at the beginning, we do not want to downplay the suffering. We certainly don't want to. People really yeah. do suffer. Uh, you know, my colleague, the other side, Professor Landman, talks about uh, making this, you know, uh, considering a minority of cases, but in the majority there's true suffering. I'm sure he's right about that, but when it comes to death, even 10% of death that is not necessary is impactful, highly impactful to the community. My colleague spoke about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we are talking about a living will and not euthanasia. Well, let me say it's indeed the situation. However, that living will may end up in a situation of euthanasia. If it doesn't, there will be no problem at all, you know. But... Uh, it usually ends up in a situation of euthanasia, which is why the powerful statement about Netherlands has to be echoed here. I need to echo it, that in mm. Netherlands, which allows the, the euthanasia, 
If you go there and you see the slippery slope, the so-called slippery slope that is happening there, that even the biggest proponents of euthanasia, when they go to there and see what happens, they come out and write and say, I'm against it at all. So, no, look, we don't downplay anything. We certainly are aware of the suffering that is going on. And let me come back to my Hippocratic oath. Professor Landman says he doesn't state anything. I just want to quote the original Hippocratic oath. You know, many people see the, the changed version of it. The original one says, and that's just one paragraph, to please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug or give advice that may cause his death. Now, mm. that's the original okay. uh, Hippocratic oath. So we stand by it. Sherilyn, mm. just to give us your final sentiments. Well, just first of all, and um, yes, just to say that you know n- nobody's wanting to prolong anybody's suffering, and what would be a good idea because I, I would deal with these things within my party, and sure. I haven't seen this legislation on my desk or anywhere. So, so it will be a very good idea for for people to get that legislation out to those who are going to actually have some say in this. And, and that we can actually look at what the detail is. So otherwise, but just generally, um, you know, it, it is crazy in a situation where we are in a country where there's a lot of pressures on people in terms of poverty, in terms of uh, the, the illnesses that, that we are faced with, and we do need to be sensitive to the fact that um, what, what becomes law becomes a, cult- a culture and people feel expected to move in that direction. We do not want to add that kind of pressure to who, who, who may well be in some kind of depression at the time that they would make that sort of um, arrangement. Mm. But at the same time, um, it's not about forcing people to take medication that they don't want or to take life-prolonging things that they don't want. Um, so, so I think we have to interrogate the bill and, and see exactly what the bill is trying to do, mm. but we must stay cautious. It's fine for us. You know, people's parents get elderly get particularly sensitive. You don't want to see them in pain. They don't want to see their children paying for something that that they think will be a hardship for them. And everybody's thinking of everybody else. And at the end of the day, um, this is life we're speaking about. And we're putting pressure on ourselves that we shouldn't have to put on ourselves. All right, Deirdre, tell us a little bit about the process moving forward. How would you actually table the bill? What's going to be, what can we expect with this particular um, bill that you would like to see put forward? Tell us the process for moving forward. Thank you, Benjamin. Well, I've lodged an in- a notification of intention to introduce the private member bill. It has been advertised in the Government Gazette. We've got a second draft out that has been made available to, to everyone. It's also made available on websites. Um, there is, we've, we've asked for comments, but comments are closing, um, and it was in the Government Gazette on the 22nd of August um, 2018. Um, we're also requesting, we've had a couple of um, doctors and also professors and universities coming on board and also um, giving us their submissions, actually in support of it, because all it is doing is it, now making it, it explicit where in the, um, the Health Act it is not as explicit what happens when you can no longer talk for yourself. Mm. It can, it's only talking about when you can talk for yourself. So okay. I just, if I can, just, is there time for me to give you a quick example on that point specifically? I think you have actually expounded on that, and uh, uh, I think uh, we've kind of understood how um, you've 
how you phrased it, and I, I kind of understand, and I think it, it, it makes a, a lot of sense, Deirdre. Yeah. You know, you, you find, for example, um, mm. a, a mother is, for example, ill, and the one daughter is living here, mm. and she's mm. actually nursing her, but you've got a daughter living elsewhere, mm. okay, that is not seeing that keeping mom on a ventilator mm. is actually causing more harm than what it is causing any good. Okay. But the one that is far away is the one that says, no, let's hang on, let's hang on. Okay, and the, the, the children here say, mm. listen, but that's not the right thing for mom mm. because she's no longer there. Mm. Um, and this is, ex- you know, exactly. I just also want to say that there are actually three signing periods where you have to be of, of, um, of sound mind. Mm. For example, you will have your first signing, your second signing witnessed by another two mm. or three witnesses taking place a month later. So it's not something that you can just decide mm. now. Um, that you find that, listen, I, um, I'm critically ill. All right, let's, let's let it go there. I think we've exhausted the different uh, dynamics and the considerations from uh, the different standpoints that uh, you all have been speaking from. But thank you for your participation. Thank you, Deirdre Carter, for giving us your time. Um, uh, she's an MP and also a Deputy uh, General Secretary of the Congress of the People. Thank you as well to Sherilyn Dudley, Member of uh, Parliament uh, and also a uh, Member of the African uh, uh, Christian Democratic Party. And thank you as well to Professor Willem Lantman, who is the Executive Committee Member of Dignity SA, and Professor Sam Hokong, who is a neurosurgeon. Just judging from this debate, a lot of considera- considerations need to be taken moving forward with this bill. But thank you for giving us your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for having us.